0: Welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week where Franklin Covey has the privilege of speaking with some of the greatest, most influential minds around the world on topics that kind of all congeal down into how to be a better leader a better leader in your organization, in your family, in your life, and all the roles that you play. Some of us are, in fact, formal and also informal leaders, and we try to interview best-selling authors and business titans and inventors, people that are protagonists, people that have especially poignant opinions on world matters. As a large global leadership company, we try to bring not just our own expertise, but what is our platform and our brand, to other people that have interesting insights to share. Sometimes it's not household names. It's people that have survived some horrific tragedy or trauma, and they've lived to forgive. They've lived to share with us life-transforming insights from their experience. Today is an interesting guest, uh, uh, a big celebrity in the podcast world. It's Guy Raz. You know him as the producer and host of multiple podcasts. He, of course, hosts a podcast that likely many of you all uh, subscribe to called How I Built This. He is a NPR household name and he's joining us today to talk about also his book by the same name, How I Built This, Guy Raz, podcast phenom. Welcome to On Leadership. Thank you so much, Scott. Now, I've interviewed some of the biggest uh, celebrities, authors, business titans in the world. Nothing is more intimidating from interviewing Mr. Podcast on this fledgling podcast we have here. So go gentle on my interviewing skills. Guy, truly honored to have you. Your book is called How I Built This, The Unexpected Paths to Success from the World's Most Inspiring Entrepreneurs. In fact, Roz, Guy, you actually host and produce five separate podcasts, one that maybe people don't know about that's actually aimed at kids. And you actually also have a new book released around that podcast. Before we get into all things Guy Raz in the entrepreneurial world, let's talk about the podcast you produce for kids and the book you've released also for kids. It's
1: a show called Wow in the World. Um, We launched it almost seven years ago with uh, a partner, Mindy Thomas, and we built a a, a media production company around it called Tinkercast. And today we produce uh, five programs. I'm not in all of them, but Wow in the World is our flagship show and it is a science adventure journey designed for kids between the ages of 3 and 12, and we're really fortunate. It is um, the number one kids' podcast in the, in the English language, so we're, we've been really fortunate to make these shows and, and get kids really excited about science, and it's, it's like a cartoon for the ear. So if you listen to it, it's very visual. We go underwater in space. We go all around the world, and it happens in this black box studio that you're seeing me in right now. <laughs>
0: Guy, I love that. Talk a bit about the book you've just also released for children.
1: What in the Wow? It's a fact book. Um, it's, our thir- it's our fourth book um, from Tinkercast. We have a book called The How and Wow of the Human Body. Um, we've got a book on animals called Wow in the Wild. And this new book is 250 Amazing Facts. Like, for example, did you know that a NASA spacesuit costs, guess, guess what it costs? One astronaut spacesuit. Oh, 2.7 million. 500 million.
0: Oh, I was off.
1: <laughs> my taxpayers <laughs> are- expensive. My tax
0: dollars are being used responsibly. <laughs>
1: it cost up to 500 million when you factor in research and development. So that's that's our new book. It's a fact book for kids, um, and it's rooted in science, and that is a big business. We've got about uh, 30 employees now. We, have a, we work with Amazon and Wondery, and our programs are now being translated into a variety of languages we've got live shows so it's a it's a whole another part of my world is tinkercast and wow in the world and um it's really fun when i meet kids and their parents who listen to how i built this and the kids who listen to wow in the world and it's it's fun
0: well i'm delighted you shared uh our guests our listeners and viewers know that i'm a dad to three young boys eight ten and twelve so anything i can do to get them off perfect off of YouTube skateboarding basketball videos and on to your podcast I will be doing this week and also paying a visit to Barnes & Noble. Guy, let's rewind a little bit. I mean, you're really, you're a titan in the podcasting industry. I don't know anyone who isn't an entrepreneur, solopreneur, has a side hustle, has an Etsy store, has a dream, isn't a leader in a company that hasn't listened to an episode of How I Built This. Will you rewind a few years plus and talk about how it came to fruition and then we'll talk about some of the insights and guests that yeah, everyone you know, can learn from. Yeah.
1: yeah. You know, I started my career 25 years ago as a reporter, um, and I spent seven years overseas. Um, and, you know, reporters are entrepreneurs, you have to be entrepreneurial as a reporter. You've got to land in a spot, you know, um, and there might be a natural disaster like what's happened in Turkey. Or for me, I covered wars, the Iraq uh, war, Afghan war. You've got to land, you've got to find a translator to help you, you've got to find a driver, you've got to find a people to connect with and people to interview. And you've got to do it usually on deadline within a few hours of arriving and start filing stories. Um, So there is an entrepreneurial um, sort of element to being a reporter. And that's what I did for most of my early career. I was a reporter, I'm no longer a reporter. I no longer work for NPR, I've got my own businesses, but that was a really important part of my early career. About 15 years ago, I had the opportunity to take some classes at Harvard Business School. I wasn't a student there. I was doing a fellowship there for a year. And it was the first time I ever took a business class. And I was absolutely stunned to see that business school, Harvard Business School teaches business mainly through case studies, through stories. And what was amazing to I love the stories, I love the case studies, but what was amazing to me was I thought... Well, this is only accessible to people who are paying $100,000 a year to go to Harvard Business School or whatever business school they go to. This is what I've been doing my whole career. I've been telling stories. Why don't I figure out a way to tell these stories, make it available for free to everyone around the world? And essentially, a few years later, um, that, with that seed in my, that idea in my head, I was able to launch How I Built This. Guy, you've had how many episodes of How I Built
0: This? We've
1: had about 700 total. So um, we do two episodes a week, a Monday episode, which is our traditional, very long, very in-depth, highly produced, deep dive story of a, of a company, of a founder and their brand. And then a Thursday episode called How I Built This Lab, which is companies that are not fully established yet but that have world-changing ideas like climate carbon capture technology or you know, trying to come up with um, supersonic aircraft or hydrogen powered airplanes that could reduce carbon emissions. So since we've launched um, in 2016, we've done 700 episodes, both live episodes and resilience episodes in the How built This Lab. And it's just, it's so fun. I learn so much every single week.
0: Before we end this discussion, I'm going to horrifyingly ask you what makes for a good podcast because Having been now in that genre for five years myself, I'm privileged to host two podcasts for Franklin Covey. And I recently had someone write in to the website to say, you know, I, for 17 episodes, I tried to like the host, Scott Miller, and just could not find myself to like him. I thought, it took you 17 episodes to decide you didn't like me? I mean, I could have told you in a half an hour whether or not you should like me. But I'm interested to hear what you think makes for a good cadence for podcasting, because it's still a, you know, a phenomenal way that... Most of the world receives their news and information and uh, meets people. Let's talk about some of my favorite guests on your show. Um, Angie's List, Angie Hicks. You interviewed her, and it was such an interesting story about how she started with like one phone. And she was listening to calls and like a phone on her floor, and then more calls came in that one phone could handle, so they got a second phone. And I'm guessing this is a common, a common trajectory that these big now, you know, New York or um, uh, NYSC company, Angie's Less, publicly traded company, I'm guessing it's a similar origin story. Is there kind of like a path that most people follow until they hit a tipping point that might be validating to a lot of yeah. solopreneurs right now with one phone on their floor like Angie Hicks? I mean, it is, and I think a lot of
1: people will relate to this idea it is about finding a problem that you have and solving it for yourself but also a problem that other people have that solves their problems so i'll give you an example angie's a great example i mean how there was a problem how do you find a good contractor how do you find a good home builder you know it used to be you look at a bulletin board on the church or you, community center or word of mouth and that still to this day happens right we get a lot of recommendations from friends but what if there was a way to create like a phone book of verified contractors, where everybody could know that these people were really good. And you could rate them so other people could see what other people thought of them. And that solved a problem that Angie and her her founding partner had, um, which in turn solved the problem for lots of other people. I just interviewed a guy named Mike Fotenauer. Mike Fotenauer was a hiker. And he grew up in the 60s and 70s when if you really wanted to hike and you needed really good hiking gear, it was really hard to find it off the shelf. And and he loved good backpacks. And so what he did was he started to make them himself. Now, this is the same story of Patagonia, the North Face, Columbia. All of the founders of these brands had a problem, which is they couldn't get good outdoor gear. So they started to make it themselves. Well, Mike Fotenauer was making backpacks. He was sewing them in Santa Cruz, California. And eventually people would come to his little workshop and say, can you sew me one? Can you sew? And and it grew and it grew and it grew. And eventually it became Osprey. Osprey is one of the most, uh, one of the biggest backpack brands in the world. It's one of the most highly regarded brands. It took 25 years for Mike to even break a million dollars in revenue. It was a slow burn. Today, you know, he sold the company for almost half a billion dollars uh, two years ago but it's a great example of how many businesses start. They start as a problem somebody has or a problem somebody wants to solve. It doesn't even have to be a consumer product. It can be a way of doing business. It can be a way of consulting. It can be better customer service. Just something that somebody wants to solve that actually solves problems that other people have or lots of people have.
0: And that's really the beginning of a business. Guy, you mentioned that by trade, you used to be a reporter or journalist. And now you're not, but I'm guessing your DNA is still very much that way. When you interviewed the co-founder of WeWork, which had a spectacular rise and a huge implosion <laughs> and all sorts of opinions about it, do you ever get a sense where you can detect something is off or something is perhaps headed in the wrong direction, whether it be morally or ethically or a story too big to be true? Uh, we work, or perhaps generalized. What what instincts come? When does the hair raise on your neck when you say, "You know, I wonder where this is really going to go"? Yeah. Well, look. the
1: The reality is that we are all, um, you know, we are all products of our environment, and we are all ultimately, you know, I think there's a level of trust that you have to put in another human. But obviously, you want to do a lot of work ahead of time. When we have guests on How I Built This, we, we receive about 50,000 pitches a year, and we only do 45 main show episodes and 44 shorter ones. So you can do the math and see we do a tiny fraction of the pitches that come in. We do a lot of vetting for every guest we bring on, um, and we really look at their character and the company, and we also look for companies that have been around for a long time. So we, we've done – in general, we do companies that have been around for at least seven to 10 years, ideally longer. Occasionally, there are these unicorns that come up that are interesting, like in the case of WeWork was an example of that. I interviewed Miguel McKelvey, who was the co-founder of the company. I did not interview Adam, um, who we uh, you know, <laughs> know a little bit more yeah, about if you've right. seen the, right. the Apple show. Miguel McKelvey is also portrayed in the Apple show, portrayed quite well. Um, you know, I met him face to face. I interviewed him face to face. He was a, uh, I thought a person of integrity, um, and I still do. And I, I, I keep in touch with Miguel McKelvey. I think that the the challenges with WeWork really came from his his partner Adam, who um, really kind of ran the show. Uh, but you're right. I mean, there are you know, there are always going to be grifters or people who are dishonest actors in the world of business and entrepreneurship, law, journalism in any field. And what's really remarkable is that out of 700 episodes we've done, our record is pretty great. Like we've, we've pretty much interviewed by and large, I think with maybe one or two or three exceptions, people who are, who have proved out to be people of integrity. Um, And that's, you know, that's hard. I mean, it's, it's hard to do because you're always going to find, you're going to find, Scott, on your show, that at some point somebody who's been on it lets you down. And that's, that's part of being human.
0: I want to talk about Ben and Jerry's in a moment, but first, let's talk about podcasting. I think I heard once that Terry Gross, of course, the iconic interviewer on NPR, Fresh Air, I think I heard once that she doesn't meet her guest she actually is in a separate booth, whether it's the same building or otherwise. But she's in a maybe she meets them, but she doesn't interview them in the same room. She wants to be different. Wants to be separated from the energy and the physicality. I think she has her head down, and her headphones on. I always picture her now when I listen to her radio program with her kind of her head down. I also yeah. heard once that Larry King never read the guest book. I and mean, of course, Larry King and Terry Gross and Guy Raz are on a different level than someone like Scott Miller, but. For the millions of people that are producing podcasts, and they're starting and stopping, or they're thinking of stopping, or they need the energy to keep going, what advice would you give on makes, what makes for a great produced podcast, and perhaps even a great hosted podcast? I'm all ears.
1: Yeah, there's a really, really easy answer to the question. It's preparation. Preparation is, it's, it's 90% preparation, and it's 10% preparation, it's 100% preparation, you can have a really, really weak guest, or a guest who doesn't really want to open up, or a guest who's not particularly friendly. And that sometimes that happens. But by and large, if you're prepared, you can crack that person, and you can get them to at least Open up to an extent that makes the, that interview worthwhile. When I go to an into an interview with a guest, all I'm thinking about is, is this conversation going to be a useful? It, will it be useful for my listeners, or am I going to waste their time? For me, the biggest nightmare is wasting my listeners' time. We've got 14 hours in the day when we're not sleeping, or you know, let's say 16. Right? If I'm Asking you to give me an hour, hour and a half of your day, that's a lot that I'm asking of you. And I better not waste your time. And so when I go into an interview, I've spent, and I do 160 interviews a year across all my shows. And it doesn't matter what show I do, I'm doing at least three hours of preparation for every interview. So I'm spending a lot of time before I get into the studio talking to that person, knowing a lot about them because that way I can draw them out. I can pull things out of them. Not, not everybody can do that. Not everybody has the time or the inclination or the capacity to do that, but it's one of the ways, and you don't have to do it that extensively or that comprehensively, but it's really one of the ways to, to build a conversation that will have value for the end user, which is the guest. Like you and me are talking here. And of course I, I I wanna make you happy in this interview, but ultimately I wanna make sure the people watching this get value out of this conversation and don't find it to be a waste of time because that to me is a nightmare. Like I'm asking you for your time, that's really valuable. Not your money, your time is really valuable. So I better give you information that's gonna be useful for you and your life. And that's to get that, I've gotta be prepared going in.
0: Many years ago, I was a big fan of Rudy Giuliani. And I once heard, many years ago, and I once heard him speak at the Real Business Forum, and he talked about how when he was a federal prosecutor prior to becoming the mayor and then his dissent, he was one of the most successful prosecutors in our country, in New York City. And he said that for every hour he spent in a courtroom arguing a case, he spent three hours preparing for the case. And he attributed the same thing you said to his success as a federal prosecutor, a three to one ratio was what he said. Let's talk about Ben and Jerry's. Mission and margin, I think one of the most iconic mission-driven companies was Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream, long, long, I think, since sold from the founders, whose mission still seems to be, you know, kind of carry forward their mission. Have you found that it's more difficult in the hundreds of interviews that you've conducted to find companies that have a, a balance that they can maintain from a strong mission while still having to earn margin for their shareholders and growth? Is it become more challenging, or perhaps has the world become more embracing of strong mission-driven companies?
1: You know, there's been a real shift, as you know, Scott, and a big trend over the last 10 years, particularly in direct-to-consumer brands to, um, towards a social entrepreneurship model, the social enterprise model. You know, famously, Tom's, of Tom's shoes that, you know, buy one, give one away, Warby Parker glasses. You buy a pair, they give one away to somebody in need. Um, and that model, I, I think, um, was has been successful for some brands and some companies. The other thing that I think is really interesting is this growth of B Corps. Um, and B Corps, as, as you probably know, are essentially it's a it's a private nonprofit uh, uh, organization that certifies companies that operate with people first ahead of ahead of profit. So Essentially, these are for-profit companies that operate like nonprofits. So, uh, you know, some of the some big companies are are, are part of it. Dannon, I believe, is part of it. Um, you know, uh, Method soaps, um, uh, Ben and Jerry's. There there are a bunch of companies that are B Corp certified and they they are recertified every year and they have to abide by certain standards. They've got to treat their employees in a certain way. They've got to treat their customers in a certain way. They've got to treat the planet in a certain way. And I think it's a really interesting business model. I think consumers are interested in that. Um, Consumers are interested in knowing about, you know, about the the brands and about their values. at the same time, you know what we've been seeing over the last, certainly over the last four or five years, has been, and I've seen this even in high built this, more and more companies that are kind of caught in this this bind because, there, you know there, th- there are um, situations where customers, certain customers, are demanding companies take a stand on on issues that companies otherwise would not have taken a stand on, things like abortion rights or the death penalty or criminal justice. And um, I think it's been very challenging for some companies to figure out, understandably, to figure out how to navigate this, because for the most part, you know, most companies want to be neutral. I think probably what we're seeing and what I'm seeing on how I built this too is, and Wisdom from the Top, which is another show where I interview CEOs of companies, the pendulum is swinging slightly back towards that That neutral ground. I think that for a while we saw companies feeling like they were forced to take a position and that caused them a lot of of trouble. You know, most companies don't want to be lightning rods. They don't want to be divisive. They want to be a place where everybody can go. Like Starbucks coffee, you know, wants to be a place where everybody can go rather than like a, you know, a political cudgel. So I think that it's a balance. You know, social enterprises are really awesome and I consume a lot of those products and, and, and um, support them, but I'm also, I understand companies that don't wanna necessarily take a stand.
0: Yeah, it's a precarious balance. Uh, I host a second podcast for Franklin Covey called C-Suite Conversations, very similar to Wisdom from the Top, where each week I spend about 30 minutes with a, generally CEO, but in the C-suite, and ask them a variety of questions. A couple of weeks ago, I interviewed a gentleman uh, who had written quite extensively about, uh, a white gentleman, uh, about in the 60s, that had written extensively on social media in a quite articulate way about the history of racism and slavery in the U.S., and, and was not trying to use his company as a platform to write that yeah. wrong, although we all should be writing that wrong. But we, we got into this idea about systemic racism, which he had written about quite publicly. And I took a bit of a, a risk, and I asked him about systemic racism, and he answered it, I thought, beautifully. And then, not surprisingly, we got a call a couple hours later asking us if we could edit that tape and remove that comment out. I'll never mention who that was. This was a lovely yeah. entrepreneurial CEO. Yeah. And I'm kind of sad because he had described this in such an, in a non-political, soul-searching kind of way. But he's also the CEO of a large company. And I'm sure his PR firm went sideways on him thinking, how could you possibly answer a question about you know, systemic racism? Yeah, it's a, it's a delicate balance, is it not? Totally, totally a delicate balance. Yeah. And I think that this is
1: something that is challenging a lot of leaders in companies and businesses in the United States. You know, we are a very dynamic, diverse, we're the most diverse country in the world, the m- most dynamic country in the world, we have the greatest innovators, and we've got the, you know, some of the the greatest um, d- divisions now too. And, you know, part of this is it just it's it's comes to the territory of being the united states of being this really complex amazing dynamic creative and also you know with with the trump's parts of our history that are obviously very troubled um and so this soup that you know that we're sort of in is forcing all of us to ask big questions and to have big conversations and i think the best companies and the best leaders um really don't come to it with answers, but rather with questions, right? It's not that they're coming to the table with a diktat saying, this is the right way or this is the way we're doing it, but rather coming to the table with open ears to listen. To me, listening, the best leaders are the best listeners. I once interviewed this guy. Um, I, I love him, Mark King. He's actually the CEO of Taco Bell of all companies, but, but a lot of experience. He did Adidas, and he was the, the CEO of TaylorMade, the golf company. And he said to me, you know, the job of a CEO or of a leader of any organization isn't to have the answers, it's to identify the person or the people who have the answers and to unleash them. That's your job. And I I thought he said that beautifully because really he is a great listener. And I think, as I say, the greatest
0: leaders and founders that I've talked to are also really good listeners. Guy, in a moment, I wanna tease out some insights from the book by the same name as the podcast, because I don't think you have a PhD, am I right? No. But you could qualify to teach at any business school in America, and your class would be standing room only. Uh, you would take the mantle of Clayton Christensen at Harvard, who passed and on our board, fine guy. But your insights are remarkable. I first, before I go there, I want to talk about um, Herb Kelleher, because you interviewed him on that 700 how many? How many interviews? Over 700. Over 700 interviews. You interviewed Herb Kelleher, and I think at the time he was maybe 83, if I'm not mistaken. I yeah, think, about are right. past in the last four or five years, if I'm also yep. right. Anything that stood out from interviews, do you find that sages, people that are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, do they have something from battle scars to their approaching crescendo in life that the younger generation, the 50s like me and 40s and 30s, anything that you've learned that... Something tends to happen when someone comes on your podcast and they're in the crescendo of their life that the rest of us need to be privy to I think and it's one of the
1: reasons why I really look for for founders over the age of forty on how I built this you know every week we get pitched some founder who's at twenty five under twenty five or Forbes twenty under twenty and that's great congratulations you know awesome job but I want to talk to you when you're fifty because There's something that you, you know, success, financial success is great, but you can't, there's nothing you can replace with life, life experience, except living. You just need time. And one of the reasons why I seek interviews with older people is because they have that perspective. You know, imagine you, and, and by the way, it's one of the reasons why I also try to hire people older than me. Because old people who are older than you, there is a good chance that they experienced all of the crises that your company or your, your business will go through. And they can, they can add that perspective. They can say, well, we've been there and this is what we did. Or, you know, hey everybody, don't freak out. This is normal, this happens. This is part of the business cycle. Look what's happening now in the business cycle. Companies with fat leaders and, and not just CEOs, but leaders across the C-suite that, that have been through the last financial crisis are telling you know young people who are Gen Zers or, or older you know younger millennials, hey guys, you've you've only worked in a period of time where there's been like 15 years of of you know just growth and prosperity, but because you came into this world that you know this you came into into the workforce after 2009, so young people who are experiencing what's happening now are freaking out, but older people who've been around they're able to say, look, this is part of economic cycles. This will pass too. So everybody just take a breath. And so somebody like Herb Keller is a great example of this. I mean, he had seen so many attempts to shut down Southwest. I mean, it took him three years before he could even take off. They could even fly the plane because all of the competitors in Texas, Braniff and Continental and others, we're, we're trying to keep it grounded. They were so influential with the FAA. They didn't want Southwest flying. And he persevered and persevered with humor and laughter and you know, his 80 cigarettes a day and his, his uh, eighth of whiskey, whatever it was. But he was able to do that and then able to reflect on that, you know, 40 years later, when we spoke, because he'd been through that and he understood what it
0: took, which was, in his case, perseverance, good humor and perspective. I've not heard the phrase Braniff Airlines in 30 years. <laughs> Talk about an encyclopedic recall. Okay, speed round with Scott Miller. We're going to end soon. I want you to envision that you now just have been hired as a professor, business course in entrepreneurialism, which in essence is what the book is. The book is a masterful collection of so many challenges and successes from everyone who's kind of on the path that you need to be on if you're an entrepreneur, or a solopreneur, or a leader in a company. Let's pretend you've just been hired as a business professor, Stanford, Princeton, maybe better yet, Salt Lake Community College. I love it. Got 60 people in your class. Uh, business leaders that are building something that's going to be sustainable, they have what in common? They have, um, they have something really
1: important in common. Well, there's a lot of things they have in common, but let me start with the first. They have the ability, especially entrepreneurs, to withstand rejection. Okay. and by the way, I would love to teach that class in Utah because I have found this very common thread among founders and leaders I've interviewed who are members of the Church of of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that many of these founders as young men or women went on missions for two years around the world and were knocking on doors and 90 percent of those doors were slammed in their face. So these young kids working for the church basically developed the scar tissue that enabled them to withstand the kind of rejection they needed to withstand when they had a business idea and everybody told them it was stupid or they went to investors and everybody said, I'm not interested. You've got to have the ability to hear no a thousand times and keep pushing forward. Sarah Blakely of Spanx had that when she went and sold fax machines door to door for years and years and just heard people say no, no, no. Tope Awatana, the founder of Calendly, the online calendar, you know, um, app. He sold alarm systems door to door as a student at the University of Georgia. Ninety percent of people said no, but he knew that you know, five to ten percent of people might say yes or might be interested in a follow-up call. That's a really important skill to develop. In terms of leadership, can I can I add a little bit to that on, on the leadership Please. side? There are three characteristics I, I found in all of my interviews, whether it's wisdom from the top or how I built this, or even my new show, The Great Creators, where I interview creatives, artists, actors, musicians, people like Tom Hanks. Um, the three elements that great leaders of great companies develop, okay? And it's not, these are not things that they're born with. Anybody can develop these things if they think about it. One is great companies, okay, they have a culture of collaboration they create a culture of collaboration because they understand that it's team company, like it's us against the world. And if we're all competing against each other for bonuses and we've got different PLs, and I'm gonna make sure that that guy gets screwed over and the company doesn't succeed. You know, it's like, it's like the United States. When the U.S. is at war, we're all aligned and we're all fighting together. When we're not, we're all fighting inside. But a company that is united and collaborative where collaboration is incentivized and where leaders create a culture of collaboration, those companies, those leaders succeed. The second is leaders who encourage risk-taking, not catastrophic risk-taking, not jump off a cliff with no balloon, no hot, you know, no parachute, but the kind of risk-taking that might fail, you know, and that might cost the company a little bit, but without those risks, there's no innovation. And the other side of the coin is leaders who cultivate a culture where failure is okay Again, not catastrophic failure, but the kind of failure that means you might have been out of pocket for three months and your project just didn't go well. Those are the companies that are some of the most innovative companies out there. And I've seen it at Google and Apple, obviously, and Amazon, but also at legacy companies like Procter & Gamble, you know, or, or Intuit, companies where they grow together, they're collaborative,
0: and they scale because they've also had failures. Guy, in this speed round, if you will, on the flip side, are there some consistent mistakes that entrepreneurs that perhaps have the best educations and the most funding and great support, that they they consistently make over and over again, not the same person, but the same mistakes, that you want entrepreneurs and leaders to say, hey, don't fall in these two or three traps because they are hard to get out of? It's... And, and and I think everyone listening can probably
1: repeat it with me. It's hubris. It's believing in your own hype. You've got to have people around you who can poke and prod at you. You know, you mentioned this, this story of Rudy Giuliani doing three, four hours of work before five hours of work before getting in the courtroom. Every lawyer goes through murder boards, you know, before a case. They get – they practice. They have – or a, a politician preparing for a debate. They get crazy – questions throughout them so they're prepared for all kinds of eventualities and I think great leaders are comfortable being challenged Great leaders are comfortable being challenged Obviously respectfully, but it's important. You know when you see a leader who believes that everything they say is the Word of God That's the beginning of the end. That's 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 the biggest mistake a founder or a leader can make
0: Guy our time is ending. What's next for you?
1: We've got so many projects going on and I've obviously how I built this and we're going to work on another book, a follow-up book. And we've got a, a new show that we launched a few months ago called the great creators, where I interview people like Tom Hanks and the songwriter Ryan Tedder or the actor, Nick Kroll or Sigourney Weaver, some of the greatest actors and performers about their creative process, about how they think of, about creativity and how they get out of creative blocks. Again, you don't have to love, actors or musicians or be interested in celebrities they are very famous people but it's if you're looking for ways to kind of re-energize your creative process or just to feel like you want to capture that creativity within you that's 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 the show is for you so
0: we hope so guy the one that got away i'm often asked which guest do i wish i could interview And my guest is um, Brian Grazier. He's a Hollywood producer, and I haven't watched hardly any of his movies. I don't tend to watch movies. I am a reader, as you can tell from the set. But he wrote a book about curiosity that I think is one of the best business books ever written. It kind of speaks to your point around research and preparation. had a great story in there about he once wanted to interview Isaac Asimov. And in the middle of this interview, Isaac Asimov's then-wife got up, and they walked out of the interview because they felt Brian Grazier's questions weren't, Um, sufficient for this man's stature. So they got up and walked out of the interview and it really got him to realize that he had lacked the preparation. So my my one that got away or one that I hope to land someday is Brian Grazier. Uh, Who's the person you'd most like to interview? I think that
1: I would most like to interview... It's important that the person I most want to interview would come to the table you know ready to talk about anything, yeah. with as all of our guests are, with an open heart. Um, and so I think somebody like... Um, Give
0: us the name. Go out on a limb. I
1: think, I, I think a great conversation with Jeff Bezos. He does not do interviews. He doesn't need to. There have right. been books written about him, but I, right. I think he's a fascinating leader and visionary um, and, and probably one of the most important in, in modern history. Sure. Um, and I think, I think a really deep in, a conversation with him could be not just fascinating, but also instructive for lots of people who want to learn from how he, how he built what he built.
0: You seem like a safe audience for Jeff, so I wish you well uh, receiving his inquiry <laughs> about it as well. Guy Raz, you're the author of the book, How I Built This, amongst other books, including the ones I'm going to buy this week for my three sons as well. You host and and produce many podcasts. I'm graciously appreciative of your time. Thanks for coming on today. I appreciate you taking the time to invest in our audience. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate you. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership.